How's working from home been going for you? Remarkably remote from GoToMeeting will help you succeed in today's new normal. In just three minutes or less, we'll share simple but helpful tips to keep you on track. From managing your motivation, workload, and relationships to hosting and attending virtual events that keep you connected with your clients and colleagues. So check out Remarkably Remote on your favorite podcasting platform or head to gotomeeting.com slash tips. Hey, what's going on? Welcome to the Raptors Reasonable Podcast. I'm your host, Blake Murphy. Joining us a little later is a voice that you are very, very familiar with. He was ringing through your ears one year ago today. It's off to Leonard, defended by Simmons. Is this the dagger? That clip, of course, is of Kawhi Leonard's Game 7 Eastern Conference Round 2 winning shot against Philadelphia 76ers. The shot, as it has become to be known, four bounces. We're going to talk later on in this podcast in about 10 minutes with Kevin Harlan, the play-by-play voice for TNT, CBS, and Westwood One, who was on that call courtesy of TNT. Uh, Really looking forward to that one. Before we get to Kevin Harlan, though, sadly, uh, we also have to bring on Eric Kareen. Eric, what's up, man? Not too much. Good to speak to you, Blake. I Is miss it? you. I miss you. Um, bought I some shoes. You. I bought some shoes today, uh, nice. so those should be arriving at some point. That's exciting. What kind of shoes? Are we talking like kicks or functional shoes? Uh, so uh, walking shoes and trainer trainer shoes. So functional, okay. I guess. Uh, I'm not going to shout out the brand because uh, they're not paying me. Yeah, that's. Uh, I did a kind of treat yourself kind of purchase last week um because it was my birthday and uh yeah those have not Mm. arrived but i'm not gonna wear them until we can get back to doing stuff anyway wow yeah i just want them so i can like work them in inside the house and uh and yeah i've been having this lingering calf problem still not recovered so uh, maybe new shoes will help or maybe they won't who knows wearing shoes in the house what are you american no, I usually don't, but like I, I will to break them in so that when I'm ready for like returning to my gym, whenever it reopens, that they're not, you know, uh, stiff or anything. I don't like stiff shoes. I know uh, I've talked to a bunch of NBA players and I think DeMar DeRozan said he wore a new pair every game. Which... He would have to like stiff shoes because the Kobe's tend to have uh, at least be really stiff through the heel. Take yeah. All to work in. Yeah, he said uh, when I, I wrote a story about it, I think in 2017, and he wore a new pair every game. Uh, and then there were some who like stuck to two pairs a year, and and it, it just varies. But I I hate stiff shoes, and I usually blister up real good at the at the beginning. So I'm trying to avoid that. Nice visual. You mentioned going back to the gym eventually, which is something that hey. you know, since it relies on uh, trusting the hygiene of other people, I feel like is going to be one of the last things I'm comfortable with doing. But if you are a professional NBA team and you have a staff of people who can properly care for and clean your workout facility, you might be the Toronto Raptors and you may have opened your doors on Monday, May 11th, 
uh, in a very, very limited capacity. The Raptors announced last Friday that as of this Monday, OVO Athletic Center is now open to player workouts in an extremely limited capacity. The NBA in a 17 or 18 page memo uh, the week prior had laid out some guidelines that teams could follow if they're in uh, a state where stay-at-home orders are not in place. The Raptors, I'm sure, looked at that, but to hear Bobby Webster tell it on a conference call last Friday, kind of went about their own path and and independently created these guidelines that they wanted to follow in talking with infectious disease experts, as well as going back and forth through a proposal with local and provincial governments. What the Raptors have rolled out is that as of May 11th, one player at a time can use the court at OVO Athletic Center. They cannot use the weight room, the medical room, uh, even the locker room. They've got to show up in their gear. They can have one non-Nick Nurse coach with them. The non-Nick Nurse part is an NBA edict, I believe, just for the optics of uh, this not being a competitive advantage and this just being to help the players. Uh, And then with that one assistant coach or player development coach or whoever it is that is in a mask and gloves, uh, they can get some shots up at the gym for, I think, an hour at a time. Eric, I was a little surprised to see the Raptors on the early end of teams opening this back up, but after talking with Bobby Webster on that conference call, uh, I came away with the feeling that this is more about giving the players who are still in Toronto uh, something to do and and a safe way to channel their energy under this kind of implicit understanding that players are going to get workouts in anywhere. We've seen plenty on social media, not just with Raptors, uh, of guys finding ways to get workouts in. What are your thoughts on the Raptors opening back up? Yeah, I think I I came to the same conclusion as you. I I thought that the Raptors would be on the slower end of things, but but you even heard it when Webster talked about like this might be it might be worth it for some players to come back and take the fourteen day quarantine. um, You know, if if they're coming back from Florida or Vegas or wherever they're coming from, just because it would be a better option than wherever they're coming from in, in their own homes or their own you know, or gyms that they've they've found that they can use somehow. Uh, I think this is just all about opening, uh, giving their players more options. Um, I, I don't think it signals much in terms of if and when we're going to get back to some form of, of play. Uh, I know that's what most NBA fans are thinking about. And it sounds like based on lots of reporting that that decision, while, you know, I think a lot of us thought it might be made around now, or or at least by the end of May might even, you know, it might go into June before we have that decision. And uh, it's, it's something and it's, you know, I, I'm not, I don't feel one way or the other about them, uh, giving the option, it sounds like they've done their due diligence and will be as uh, and as far as opening things up, this is a very, very, very cautious approach. Uh, it was interesting to see the Raptors hire Rick Nurse uh, to be another assistant coach. He's like Nick, but wears horned or er, horned rimmed glasses and a fake mustache, a slightly um, thicker goatee. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I. I you know, it's it's something, and half the roster, according to Bobby Webster, is here. So it's it's you know just another way to keep players sharp. I really don't think it signals much of anything, though, and I don't think it's the competitive advantage. Really, I think most everybody in the NBA has probably found a way to get some shots up and do their own work by now. Yeah, the 
this not being a sign of anything imminent is important to keep in mind uh, if you've been following along with the reporting, which if you're still listening to this podcast in week 400 of quarantine, uh, I'm sure you have been. Uh, the league doesn't seem close to making a decision on things. Adam Silver in a conference call with Michelle Roberts, the head of the MBPA and players last week, um, said basically that this is a decision that could take place in June. Um, Adrian Wojnarowski of ESPN reported Monday that the NBA and MBPA have agreed to push back the window uh, within which the league could cancel the collective bargaining agreement, which is more of a procedural thing than a sign that, you know, these sides are working at contention. Uh, Technically, the NBA had 60 days to do that within. Now they're just allowing, uh, they're expanding that window, which I think is actually a positive uh, that they agreed to that in the sense that the NBA and MBPA are still working together really collaboratively to figure this stuff out. Uh, There are a ton of unknowns. There is some, you know, it sounds like teams are pushing for some sort of clarity on what's going to happen with things like the salary cap and luxury tax, not just for future planning, but, you know, if they roll out a draft at some point, uh, teams might want to know what the cap situation is looking like because it could dictate uh, their willingness to trade or certain players that need to be shopped, uh, something like an amnesty provision if that comes into play. Uh, So I think we might get that a little earlier than we normally would in the in terms of the league calendar uh meaning that it'll probably come before the draft rather than after the draft but everything we've heard is also that the draft won't take place until after the season is over which could be into like september if you look at some of the scenarios so uh still a lot of uncertainty still a lot of wait and see um you know everyone's fond of the quote at this point you don't make the timeline the disease makes the timeline uh, which I think is still holding true. There's a drop dead date at some point that the league will have to make a decision on the 2019-2020 season, uh, but with their willingness to push the start of the 2020-2021 season, perhaps as far as Christmas Day, uh, they do have a little bit of runway here um, as we continue to wait and see. You know, if you're in a place like Ontario, you have the rolling five-day average of new incidences decreasing, and, and that that R0 may be getting down below one at some point, uh, but we've already seen as things reopen, uh, there have been some spikes or second waves, if you will, uh, which is probably predictable given the earliness with which some places reopened. Uh, but all of this is just to say that we don't really know and we're pretty far way away still from knowing. So it's great for the Raptors players who are in Toronto that they have a safe place to work out and get shots up and get a sweat in. Uh, I'm sure that even shred of return to normalcy is helpful from a mental health perspective and a physical health perspective. Uh, But do not take that as a sign that we are anywhere close to getting back. No matter what Jared Dudley tweets, uh, (laughs) tweeting Sunday night, that two months down, one month to go. I hope he's right, but I don't think that... uh, we can say that with any. Kind uh, of I don't. Th- I don't think we're playing basketball on uh, what's today, June eleventh. Yeah, today's I, I, May eleventh. No, no, I know. I, in in a month, I don't think games will be starting again. Um, no, but even if his tweet indicated that training camps would be started by then, then that would mean you know I think everyone's operating with the assumption of roughly a three week training camp to ramp back up. That could see basketball in July. Which, uh, you know, it seems that sounds super aggressive right now, but I sure hope he's right because I miss basketball, Eric. Yeah, that'd be cool. And just just for a past reference, in the lockout shortened year, uh, 11-12, they started the season on Christmas Day, and that's when they got a a 66-game season in, and 
the regular season ended on April 26th, I believe. I think that was the date of the Ben Uso game. It sure um, was, Eric. <laughs> so, it, you know, it, be prepared for the regular season. I mean, I would guess they're going to try to play 82 and just accept that the season will roll longer and change the calendar accordingly because they'll be playing catch-up from a revenue perspective. But uh, uh, it's possible to do these things, and maybe the, we'll have to go back to more back-to-backs for a while and all this stuff. I mean, we're way ahead of ourselves now and stuff that the NBA and the MB, then uh, the Players Association is going to have to figure out there's a lot to to uh, to still know about what's going to happen and what might happen next year with the virus. And uh, even if we do get back by July 1st or July 4th or, or whatever the date is, and, you know, again, hugely speculative, there will have to be contingency plans, uh, plenty of contingency plans in place. Now, it is, you mentioned the date May 11th. March 11th was the date that Rudy Gobert tested positive and all of this stuff started. The last two months have felt like a year. They have not, in fact, been a year. If you actually zoom out to one year ago, uh, you are probably listening to this on May the 12th, exactly one year ago today. Kawhi Leonard hit the first Game 7 walk-off in NBA history to help us reflect and remember the shot. Kevin Harlan, the play-by-play voice for TNT, CBS, and Westwood One, will join us after this. Joining us now, the play-by-play voice for CBS, TNT, Westwood One, and... Fresh off doing some work for the 2K game series, we've got Kevin Harlan. Kevin, what did it feel like to get back in some version of the booth after a few months? Hi, guys. Yeah, no, it was great. I um, uh, They've just, uh, because of the quarantine and we're all still at home, and in most of the states in the country, there's some loosening. As we know, we're going day by day, state by state. But um, uh, the recording we usually do in a studio but because of the unique circumstances, they have made these mini recording studios that they have shipped out all over the country. One to Doris Burke, one to Shaquille O'Neal, one to Ernie Johnson, one to Chris Weber, one to Clark Kellogg. I mean, on and on and on. They've got all these people that have now gotten these, uh, like these home kits to record NBA 2K21. So it's great because now, I don't have to leave the house. I could, I, I've actually got it set up in our uh, uh, walk-in closet we have, and um, it's terrific, and the quality is amazing. What, I don't know how they do it. They're so smart, but anyway, they do it to the point now where we can do it from our homes, so it's it's really convenient. Yeah, it's uh... – you know, it's amazing what people smarter than, you know, us humble sports chroniclers can do. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, you know, uh, it's most people will be listening to this on May 12th, which is one year since Kawhi Leonard's shot in Game 7 of the Eastern Conference semis between the Raptors and the Sixers. Uh, you're obviously a veteran of many playoff games, many Game 7s. Uh, when you're going into a game seven, and I, I believe, had you done many games of that series beforehand, or was this your first game of the series? No, for, we uh, we just we par- yeah we parachuted in. We we did not do that series. I had done the uh, Sixers against the Nets. I did a couple games in that series, but they had us bouncing all around. We did. <laughs> we actually did, I think, five different first and second round series. And um, I pretty much thought that we were finished. We were with Houston. I'm trying to think who even Houston played. Did they play Utah? Anyway, whoever they played in the second round, we did some of that series. <clears throat> we also 
um, did a couple other uh, Western Conference series along the way, a game here, a game there. But I thought I was finished and, and uh, was actually flying home from, I think I was flying home from Los Angeles and I was connecting in Denver and I got a call on a Friday um, thinking my season was over. And they said, uh, there's a game seven now. We'd like you to do it. And I said, great. And um, unless they played Friday, maybe they said, if there is a game seven. And I think that's exactly what happened. They played as I was traveling and they said we'd have to go up. So I was thrilled. Anytime you can do a game seven, you um, you're very excited for it. And I was, and that worked out great and um, got up there and was thrilled to be in Toronto and love the atmosphere of the building. What are the challenges of uh, doing, I mean, game sevens are beasts uh, all of their own, but what are the challenges of doing one? Like when you're just jumping into a series, how much, how much homework do you have to do and how much catch-up does it feel like you're doing? That's a great question. I, there, there wasn't as much a feeling of, of, of catch-up, although you've got to obviously know the body of the series and, and what was going on. But, but what was great was um, a Game 7 kind of speaks for itself. So if we've got the box scores from the previous games, you can kind of see some trends, what, you know, was happening in one game and another game, who was playing well, who had a, a, a struggling performance perhaps in one of the previous games. And you kind of use all of that as background as you go into the first and second quarters of the game. But once you get into that second half in particular of a series deciding game seven, you know, it's pretty much reporting on what's going on. So you can mention that Jimmy Butler had done this or Kawhi Leonard had done that and Lowry had done this and had this injury or battled through this particular kind of defense or whatever the case is and, um, and have, a, have a pretty good knowledge. But I think in a game like that, you just kind of want to let the game speak for itself. So while there's some background to do, you're basically just kind of commenting on, on what's going on and as those in-game stories develop. I'm reading stuff from the newspapers, listening to podcasts like this one, trying to get caught up, but you don't want to go in loaded with too much information, but just enough that you've got a good handle on the storyline. And the storyline is easy for this. Game seven, winner advances, loser goes home. Who's played well? Who's not played well? What, what trends have we seen? What defenses have worked? What offensive schemes have been effective? And then after that, you just kind of let the game unravel. Because a lot of times, each game kind of is their own story in a, in a, in a seven-chapter book. And, and chapter one is different than chapter three. Chapter three is different than chapter five. And we knew chapter seven would be different. Both these coaches adjusting as they go along. So it really, it really kind of, uh, in a lot of ways, it's like doing a Super Bowl. And I've done 11 Super Bowls. You, 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 the, the story is the game that's unfolding and, and happening right before you. And that, that kind of puts your reporter's hat on who, what, when, where, how, and why. And as you continually update that story as it's happening, that's it, kind of a fun challenge to have as opposed to a regular season game where you're trying to get caught up on the 35 games that have already been played. And now you're in Toronto and they're playing Boston and you're just trying to put the season in focus. Whereas in a series, 
things are so fresh and so uh, constantly ever developing that staying on top of those of those constantly changing stories within a game is is a wonderful challenge to have. Kevin, I want to fast forward a little bit now from you swooping in uh, for the start of Game 7 to, to taking us to the moments before the call. Uh, that game was obviously a, a slugfest. We've heard Jimmy Butler say they they think if it went to OT uh, that they, they would have had it and they had the Raptors against the ropes. We've heard the Raptors say, uh, you know, particularly Serge Ibaka question just how much they had left in them. Um, as you're kind of as the game's kind of winding down in the fourth and every call almost feels like this, this haymaker back and forth. Uh, what were your personal feelings, you know, heading into, if not the final shot, then, then the closing minutes does, do you start to feel the energy of the crowd in the game? Are you getting anxious as that goes along? Or are you, you know, is this old hat enough still that, that you can kind of keep it together and, you know, no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. This is what I'm expecting. Well, I'm a fan. Uh, I don't think any of us would be in the business we're in if we weren't fans and didn't have a love for the players, the teams, the league, the style, all of it. So, so I'm like I'm like the fans. I'm I'm at the edge of my seat. Uh, I love your term haymaker. That sounds great. Uh, that has a that's what it felt like. The beginning of the game, as you recall, guys, was not very good. Uh, poor <laughs> shooting, and and they were both just like they're kind of playing rope a dope, right? As you're talking kind of the, with the boxing analogy, they were kind of covering up. They were in the corner. They were leaning on the ropes. They, re- they were taking shots, but they weren't really effective. And both teams are kind of just feeling each other out. And then they kind of, I think, another gear took over. And second quarter on, it had had that feel. But even if it had kind of staggered along and bumbled its way through, you knew that the winner was going to advance. So it was, it was winner go home. And, and there's there, there's nothing like that definitive marker where, oh, there's not another game to play. It's, it's this or it's do or die. I mean, everybody hold on to the rope and pull in the, in the, in the same direction because if we don't, it's going to cost us a season and we're finished. So there's always that lingering thought of that, you know, approaching literally minute by minute as every second ticked off. So the, the beauty of that game seven and with no team really kind of taken the game by the throat and squeezing was that, you know, it kind of the crescendo built and built and built and built and built. And and finally you get to this moment, but I kind of equate it to um, uh, a a guy that's trying to break open a rock. Um, And he may take, you know, uh, a thousand hammers at a boulder to crack it in half. And it's only on that 1000th hammer that it finally breaks in two. And they people will say, man, that was a that that was a great one thousand hit. He goes, no, no, it wasn't that that particular hit. It was the nine hundred ninety nine swipes at the rock, hammers at the rock, that made the one thousandth hit the one that broke it open. So I always like to tell young broadcasters that you want to lose yourself in a game. You want to have everything very organic, meaning that you 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 you're you're so focused. You're so invested, you're so engaged in the game that that sometimes you kind of lose track of things outside, the noises, the crowd, the, the consequence. You're just so focused into this possession and that rebound and this shot and that foul. And, 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 but it's all organic and you call all these things without thinking about, oh, I want to make sure my voice rises here. 
oh, I want to make sure that I have a clever saying there. I want to make sure that I've got some, you know, flamboyant something or other coming up. You don't think about that. You think about the game, but you hope that you've done so many games and so many series and so many plays that what comes out at that big moment is organic and and fits and 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 captures the feeling. And and with those calls comes the right timing of a call and the the the, the proper cadence and the space required to make it. So as I go back and watch the play of Kawhi, you know, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy. You know, of course we'd like to say things differently, but I'm pretty happy about, you know, um, setting the defense, you know, Greg Anthony had made his comment about what to look for the shot. And then, you know, the, the pause and the sound of the ball bouncing on the rim. So, you know, when I said dagger, you know, you just kind of, you, you, you think theatrics, but it was like someone's going to get it in the back and they're done. And the guy thrusting that knife in the back, that's the victor. You know, who is going to who is going to place it? And the game was tied at 90 when they inbounded, as we know. And so that shot could have missed and we could have had overtime. And that would have been, you know, another chapter to this book, like the conclusion, the whatever, however you want to want to look at how the game was parceling itself out. So. So it was all very organic, and I, I, the dagger to me just kind of fit as it came out. You know, who's going to kill who here? Who's who is going to come up with with that thrust of that knife and and be able to to walk away from this this haymaker after haymaker as you talked about? So, so um, that was the setup. You just kind of let it kind of come to you organically, and and it did, and and that's what happened, and it was. The only walk-off game seven final buzzer-beating <laughs> shot we've we've had in the playoffs ever, ever. You've called a lot of buzzer beaters and game winners, as you mentioned. This was one of a kind, but but not only for the circumstance, but also the nature of the shot. You know, uh, as I am in the sort of the process of writing, you know, the world sort of went into actual <laughs> slow motion at times. Can you yep. have you called yep. any shot that? you know, just by the nature of bouncing four times, like any moment that sort of resembles that one? No, not like that. Not, not that has had the added drama, the, the, the not artificial, but man-made ball bouncing type drama. Will it or will it not go in? Um, I've had shots where, uh, you know, it's a buzzer beating shot and it goes in, you go good and it's down and they got, you know, but this was like, here it goes. Is this the dagger? You know? And, and and then it just you know by the grace of God it had the added uh, uh, drama of bounce after bounce and <laughs> and you know uh, when we do these broadcasts there's so many uh, helping hands there's so many professionals and I remember uh, distinctly our audio guy our sound guy lacing up the microphones on those backboards so that you can hear just what we all heard as the ball bounced and bounced and bounced. You could hear that ball. And then, and then the crowd, you know, the crowd goes silent. There's like not a whisper. There's not a breath. There's not a, there, there's nothing except just, you know, your inner emotions playing as your eyes are watching and your senses are trying to come to grips with what, 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 what's going to happen, you know? And then just that collective, oh, you know, like, like, oh my gosh, it goes in. 
And you look, and where's Kawhi? He's sitting on his backside, you know, <laughs> off the court, in the corner by the by the camera guys, you know, surrounded by his team. And, like, you cannot write. You cannot. If you wrote that kind of ending, people would go, oh, my God, what a hokey ending, right? But, no, <laughs> that's what happened. That was it was thrilling. It was it was magical. Before we let you go, I wanted to ask you a bit of about the moment before the moment. Uh, I, I don't know if you remember, 10 seconds left in the game. The Sixers are out of timeouts. And Kawhi Leonard, who's been this hero uh, throughout the series, you know, especially game four, you think of the Raptors' close win over Philadelphia in Philly, uh, but also game one, and he'd been so excellent all playoffs long. Uh, he goes up again, Sixers, no timeouts, uh, the Raptors are up one and he has two free throws to make it, you know, a very difficult situation for, uh, Philadelphia to get back into the game. Cause the Raptors of course could have given a foul. How much money would you have laid down on Kawhi Leonard knocking both of those <laughs> down in that situation? A lot. That would have been my guess. That would have been uh, what you would have thought would happen. What do you finish with? 41 in that game? Am I right? 41. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 41 points in a game seven. Are you kidding me? So even a miss here or there or a clutch free throw, we're, 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 all of it, you know, um, just paints this this nice canvas of of what eventually happened. And and uh, but no, I mean, you just think guys like this are at their best when the stakes are the highest and the pressure is the greatest. I, you know, I, I think about Kawhi the way I do. Jimmy Butler, he's always gonna answer, right? Like you just think he's all, I don't think of Simmons that way. I don't think of Embiid that way. I think of Lowry that way. Think of Kawhi that way. Think of Jimmy Butler that way. Like, like these are guys with, with, with steely nerves and, and, and their heartbeat is just at a slow pace. They, they don't blink. They just, they just, you know, squeeze harder when, when the, when the consequences are greater and, the stakes are at their highest. And, um, but yeah, no, I mean, all, all, all the things that happen along the way, you could sit and go over and it's fun to do that. But the bottom line is, you know, e even the series against Golden State and then later, you know, before that Milwaukee, you know, they, that just, there's just something about a game seven and the bounce of the ball and a missed free throw and a made shot. And it just, it just lives with you forever. And, and I think people sometimes, that weren't as invested in that series suddenly did get invested. And then you forget, oh my God, they still got the Eastern Conference finals they got to go through and the finals if they make it that far. So, but but it's funny that we all talk about that shot, that win, that game seven, the heroics of it as, as kind of a, you know, when you think of Kawhi, you think of a champion, but you think of that shot. And and that's what what is so fun about the playoffs. You never know when that defining moment is going to come. Yeah, they beat Giannis. And, and then, yeah, they got, they got to the finals and won that. But we all still kind of drift, you know, kind of whether it's romantic or whatever, about that win at home in front of the crowd and, in, you know, getting past, you know, getting over the hump and, and it, with a legitimate shot to get into the finals. But then a tough series with Milwaukee looming. And, and um, as it turned out, they, they win it all. And, you think about that shot of Kawhi is one of those defining moments of that march. 
And Kevin, your your call is definitely going to be part of that cl- that memory for Raptors fans, which, uh, as you said, will live on forever. Uh, we really appreciate you taking time uh, to speak with us and uh, say be safe to your family and friends. And we hope to hear you on uh, meaningful broadcasts as soon as it's safe, and hopefully that's sooner rather than later. Well, thank you so much, and thanks for your kind wishes. And we we send them back to you and your families and those close to you. Um, it's, it's a, it's an odd time, but we began the conversation talking about our recording of the, the NBA 2K video game series. And this is uh, NBA 2K 21. And let me tell you that already I've done Toronto highlights, watched video clips, had a little bit of interaction with Doris Burke and Shaq and, and, uh, and Greg Anthony and the others that are a part of it. And um, the Raptors have a very prominent role in that video game, as they should. And it just makes me all the more anxious to get back up there, call games, see nice people like yourselves, and get this NBA season back going again. I'm not sure what form it's going to take, but um, we, all, we all love the game. We all miss the game. And hopefully it's, it's sooner than later before we're all together again, enjoying the greatness of the NBA. But, but thanks for having me on. Sure fun to talk to you all. Thanks so much, Kevin. Thank you. Well, Kevin Harlan mentioned how if you'd written up the Game 7 ending, the shot, the walk-off as time expires, uh, you would be told it was too hokey. Eric, you and I were DMing the other day about my uh, me beginning a Friday Night Lights rewatch, which asks the question, what if every single game of multiple seasons in a row came down to the shot? Um, I will say for a TV show... It maybe runs a little thin at some point, but uh, I could deal with more Kevin Harlan calls like that for sure. Yeah, uh, I mean, I mean, just one of the voices of my early fandom, and and I mean, he's one of the guys you would want on such a dramatic call. Uh, I think he had at least one of the Damian Lillard game winners uh, to end a series uh, on on TNT. Uh, maybe the first one against Houston uh, a few years back. Uh, but that game itself, I, I mean, as Kevin mentioned, what what drama, the the way that Philadelphia, unlike, like, I, I think, I definitely thought when Kyle Lowry got that steal for the uh, Pascal Siakam layup, that was going to be it. Uh, and, and there was no way back. But uh, that's why you play the free throw game. Any, anyway, uh, super dramatic and... and definitely a fun moment to to relive what what stands out for you about that evening uh i think the big one is still Kawhi leonard like like offense was at a premium throughout that series and philadelphia's length gave toronto's guards a lot of trouble um you know fred van vliet and norman powell were on the brink of being unplayable you know danny green's biggest strength would have been taking advantage of J.J. Redick, but you saw what happened and we've seen famously what happened since from the roastings of his teammates when you try to funnel possessions to Danny Green uh, against J.J. Redick or Danny Green post-ups. So offense was just at such a premium throughout that series and you had, you know, Pascal Siakam dealing with the calf injury and you had Kawhi Leonard, you know, looking, I think that was the series where he had the most moments of, uh uh-oh, are his legs okay? Uh, So for him to go through that game with a 48% usage rate and come up with a point per possession, um, which, you know, like 41 points on, what was it? 
42 with with turnovers 46 used possessions is not particularly efficient in a vacuum but in the environment of this series it was borderline miraculous like we're talking about Philly's defensive peak was probably second only to Toronto's defensive peak come playoff time uh and then you have you know so much length and there aren't a lot of guys giving material help in terms at least in terms of um, their ability to score efficiently so uh for Leonard to be carrying them with 48% usage and then you know it comes down to that and you know who's getting the shot and the questions in the back of my head before that it's like oh is he too tired like are 39 field goal attempts too many in this high intensity a game uh, I mean I think obviously that's kind of the defining moment of Kawhi Leonard's season with the Raptors and and probably the moment he gets back on the radar as like, oh yeah, we should talk about this guy's one of the best players in basketball. Um, so for me, it's, you know, the shot's incredible, but really his performance that entire game and the entire series as a, as an offensive number one when no one around him uh, could, could change the offensive environment to, to help out was incredible. Yeah, they were, it was just, as he's pointed out, so hard for this team that other than Kawhi Leonard, the offensive engines are, are sort of Siakam, who's going up against one of the best defenders in the world, and, and you know, and his game hadn't really developed enough to that point where he would be able to make anybody pay with, you know, his work in the mid range or even from the elbow regularly. And then other than that, you've got Kyle Lowry and Fred Van Vliet, who are your main creators, and. You know, Lowry certainly had his moments, but it's very hard for Van Vliet, given the size that Philadelphia has, to initiate. And that just left so much on Kawhi. It left so much for him to do in the mid-range. And, you know, people will look back at the lines at at the box score and see he went, I believe, 16 for 39. Is that right? 13 for 39? Something like that. Uh, 16 for 39, yeah. Yeah, um, and say, well, wasn't very efficient. But as you pointed out, within the context of that game, that's doing pretty well. And within the context of not being able to necessarily rely on anybody aside from the piping hot Serge Ibaka in that game. (laughs) uh, uh, And certainly that's one of the other moments, his uh, three at the end of the clock over, I want to say it was Ben Simmons was over. Of course it was. (laughs) Um, I was also going back Ben Simmons just couldn't fathom defensively the idea of someone that tall attempting a three (laughs) the slander doesn't even stop during quarantine Um, yeah so to quantify what I mean about the series a little bit more um, you know it was obviously an offensive grind for both teams Kawhi Leonard other than Kawhi Leonard the only Raptor with an even an average true shooting percentage in that series was Danny Green who had a 12% usage rate and was not very good uh, in game seven and then Norman Powell who only played 68 minutes and the only reason his true shooting percentage scraped by average was because he hit five of ten on his threes which, you know, in such a small sample is going to be pretty random. So Kawhi Leonard was basically the offense unto himself. And like you said, Siakam did some great work, carried a lot of possessions, which is important still in a playoff environment where you just got to win each game and win each possession. Uh, But in terms of efficiency, Kawhi Leonard putting up a 63.4 true shooting on 35.6% usage against what was maybe the second best defensive ceiling team in the league last year is pretty... Pretty damn remarkable. Yeah, by the, by the time most people are listening to this, uh, my story on, on sort of remembering the shot in Game 7 will go up. And it's amazing how much, I, I mean, I think 
we and a lot of Raptors fans will probably remember a lot of the smaller moments, but over time, it's just going to all be overshadowed and, and, you know, understandably so by the shot. But, you know, I, I'm going through the play-by-play and, and there was that play where uh, Ben Simmons starts by pushing off Pascal Siakam, gets the ball uh, in the paint, does a hook shot, hits uh, Serge Ibaka in the face with his elbow. Meanwhile, uh, Mark Gasol and Joel Embiid are grappling for position and Embiid clears him, like does a swim move to try and get Gasol out of his position. And uh, as a pro, he throws Gasol off balance, who then hits Embiid in the face with his elbow. And that was sort of just representative of, of the game as a whole. Like it wasn't necessarily pretty, but man, like the intensity in that game, uh, it was all over the place and there were nerves certainly there were guys who didn't look comfortable taking the shots and, and you know that was true of the whole series but never more so that than in that game and as kevin pointed out there there is nothing like a game 7 and that this one ended in you know the, the perhaps the most dramatic way possible is you know a year later still pretty damn staggering and then i guess the one other thing we have to say is uh you know shout out to the random guy in a suit my guy Jordan Lloyd, uh, big part of the shot for me as well. Yeah, for everyone. No, yeah, no, he he will. He's in. He, he's got his picture up in Pearson Airport and any number of other places where that photo or, or versions of that photo uh, are. You know, will live on, and it's a signature moment. And uh, it, it as I you know, I, I think the thing that I naturally compare it to in terms of Toronto sports. Uh, you know, having been only eight when Joe Carter hit his home run, uh, it was Jose Batista Batista's home run in uh, in 2015. But that, you know, obviously doesn't end the game. And it also, like, as great of a moment it was, I'm not taking anything away from it. Like, I'm still not sure what the cooler moment was, but that was imbued so much by what came before it, the crazy seventh inning. Um, and... While this certainly was the product of it being a tie game, the shot almost stands on its own. Like, you don't have to know anything other than winner goes home, the game is tied, what's going to happen to really, really appreciate that moment? It's it's going to be, you know, I, I count myself as lucky to have been there. I'm sure you feel the same way. And it's if we ever get to cover any other moment better than that, we'll be even luckier, I would say. Yeah, I don't know how you top uh, walk-off Game 7. I guess it being in the finals is the only way yeah. to top it off Yeah, for a finals-winning one. Um, all right, Eric, any other parting shots before we before we wrap it up? No, I, I mean, it's a, it's a fun day to look back on, for sure. And uh, uh, there are lots of moments from last year's run. We've talked about a lot of them already. Um, you know, Kawhi Duncan over Giannis in Game 6 against Milwaukee. Uh, all three of those wins in Golden State, but man, uh, that was cool. Uh, So no other thoughts, everybody. Please stay safe and uh, continue to to help those numbers go down and and stay reasonable in terms of COVID. We're we're doing a thing here and it seems like we're making progress. So that's that's nice. My only other thought, I did think it was a little inappropriate of you to offer Kevin Harlan money to, after the interview was done, just say random things about your life so that you could play them around your house. But, you know, oh, man. Shoot, it's, shoot it's, your shot, I guess. 
it's so str- like it's so strange hearing him uh in normal conversation uh <laughs> just because we've heard him so many times it's so many you know not only the memorable calls but you know he he often soundtracks our thursday nights or, or whatever yeah. it might be so and 2k to, yeah so to hear him just you know going through his thought like i often hear i often tell broadcasters that uh, you know <laughs> but it's kevin harlan's voice telling you that i try not to to nerd out too much but not hmm. succeeding very well <laughs> well at that i was the first playoff game non-raptor playoff game i was at um and i think the first or the the, and the first one i i covered as well uh was the uh, with no regard for human life game in Cleveland against Boston. Uh, Amazing. And obviously, I didn't hear that in person, but, uh, you know, I'll, I'll always, even if I didn't, it seems like I did hear it in person. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's my Harlan story. And, uh, man, he's a great broadcaster and, and fun to hear him remember uh, what will be one of the most special nights in Raptors history. Yeah, that was great. Um, this was great. Guys, thank you so much for listening. As usual, theathletic.com slash we the six. If you don't yet have a written subscription and you'd like to check it out, you can get 40% off at that link. Like Eric said, he's got uh, um, a written piece on the anniversary of the shot up today, yesterday, uh, Monday, in case you're not listening to this on Tuesday. Uh, I went kind of back and forth with John Hollinger and the the format Eric and I normally use for our Raptors Reasonless column. Uh, we did that with John Hollinger to get kind of a state of the Raptors uh, update and get his uh, his experienced front office opinion on some of the the questions that'll face the Raptors when we get out of hiatus here. Um, looking ahead a little bit, like I've said, we're going to continue to slowly ramp up the draft stuff. I don't want to blow it all too quickly because we might have a, a long runway ahead of us before the actual draft, um, but we're going to start chipping away at that stuff again soon. Um, and then next week, I think, I won't say who just in case we don't get it but i think we'll have a fun guest next week as well so guys thanks for continuing to listen along thanks for listening to this one and thank you for kevin harlan uh, for coming on that was awesome eric thanks man talk to you next week thanks blake see ya